It's Dr. Stu's Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based birthing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And uh, we are not in the studio, as usual, during this uh, coronavirus period. I'm here with Craziness. the usual, with the best co-host in the business, my friend. At least your co-host. The mysterious <laughs> one. No, you, are the, you have the best voice in the business. Bliss Young, welcome. Bliss, good to see you. Hello, good morning. I saw you this week. You're seeing me now. No, but I saw you this week too. Where? Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I've had so many births. <laughs> Where? <laughs> Where did you see me? Yeah, it was like, oh, it was like two days. days ago or three days I, ago. I literally have had in the last ten days yes. four births. So I'm just Well that's kidding. great. You know what yeah. I, you know what I've had in the last ten days? Hiking. Well I had one birth. Mm-hmm. Waiting. But, yeah, this is awful because oh first I gotta do this. Um, you can check us out at drstewspodcast.com <laughs> for the music's over. Uh, probably the music's probably over by now anyway. Keep going. Um, Keep going. And you can find me at uh, birthinginstincts.com. You can find Bliss at birthingblissmidwifery.com. Uh, Instagram, I'm at birthinginstincts. You're at birthingblissmidwifery. Mm-hmm. Uh, gmail.com is where I get uh, your mail. I've got a couple of letters we'll go over today. Okay. So there, okay. there's the introduction. <laughs> okay. Now we got that out of you the You know, way. without a microphone, without the music playing, it just doesn't have the same sort of zing. You know, John puts it in afterwards. So <laughs> you guys will hear it when you watch later on. But uh, hello, everybody. Hello. Um, so visiting California. All right. Astrid, where are you from? I mean, where are you now? She's a midwife. I see you posting all the time on a yeah. midwif- midwifery group. Welcome. So maybe California. she likes this new time. Oh, do you like this new time, everybody? 10 a.m. Wednesdays. It, I'm going to say bright and early, but for most people, 10 a.m. is not bright and early. But so me. yesterday, I talked to people in North Carolina mm-hmm. and five midwives in South Africa. Oh, like all together? Mm-hmm. On a Zoom meeting. We, we talked about uh, twins, mm. and I told them to, to bring, bring me and you to South Africa. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> right. They said they I love that they you're bringing they, me along. They said they don't have any money, and I said, okay, well, then just I'll come to South Africa on vacation, and I'll give a talk, and then I can write the whole trip off. Right? Yeah. Until they change the tax laws. I would write it off anyways. You do? Oh. I didn't. I disavow any knowledge of that action. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm just waiting. I'm waiting and waiting. And I have my cousin here who's getting very impatient um, for babies. Yeah, my cousin is a fourth year medical student. I think we talked about her last week, mm-hmm. and we had a, a great breach delivery where she got to see what it was like to be in someone's home and do nothing for hours, and then have an exciting little birth. And then she was most impressed with the postpartum non-intervention time mm-hmm. but i have um five sets of twins due and one woman with diabetes and hypertension due and we're just sitting around and it's already the 7th of october and they're all due within the next 18 19 days so the the, the more days we go without it the more likely there I, I have the the stress of dealing with the idea or the anxiety of dealing with the idea that two people going into labor at the same time yeah right yeah Call me if you need me. Would, would you break that law also? He's thinking. No. Right. No. Just the tax laws. No. All right. Shh. 
No, no I wouldn't break laws ever. Right. Mm-hmm. So I have I have um, uh, Dr. Flores, who's new in town. I think What's I've mentioned Dr. her before. What's Dr. Flores' first name? Victoria. By Victoria Scout. Victoria Flores. Yeah, she's out in. Uh, she'll be in Riverside. I think that's where she's going, or in that area, Riverside County. And she's going to start doing some home births, and she's going to cover me. Um, you know, I, I, it's, and this is an interesting, this has been an interesting dilemma this month because I have a wedding that was scheduled, is scheduled for the 24th of October in South Carolina. And then I have a lecture that is in Bozeman, Montana on October 31st, November 1st. Are you starting to travel again? Well, I haven't really announced anybody until like just now making an announcement that I'm actually going to go. Because up until a couple of weeks ago, we didn't know if they were going to take place or not. Right. So here's a dilemma. Would you tell somebody five months ago or four months ago that you have these dates set and make them sort of worry for five months? And even though it might, it was, there was a decent chance back then it wasn't going to happen. Because of uh, well, like, gather, because of gatherings. Like I'm taking January off with the hopes that I can go to Hawaii, and I just haven't taken anybody. No, January. I know, I know that, but mm-hmm. but I didn't want to not take people because the likelihood that this was going to be canceled could have been very much like Ecuador. Yeah, I know. I took the risk though. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't cancel for a, for two days in South Carolina. I mean, I can't cancel a whole month's worth of clients. Yeah, it's hard. Right. It's so it's hard. it's a dilemma because. You know, I, you know, a lot of traveling, a lot of traveling gets canceled. Lisa from is saying hi from Australia. Great. Yay. Hi, Lisa. Um, it's hard traveling and uh, being on call is they don't go very well together for sure. Right. Yeah. Right. So anyway, so I've got all these people do mm-hmm. and, but it's been, I've had some very interesting stuff going on in my office, but why don't you tell us, why don't we talk about the birth? You want to talk a little bit about the birth we were at together or is there really nothing to say? Talk about you talk birth. about it. You want me to? Yeah, it's your birth. Okay, so um, so I did have uh, four deliveries in the last little bit of time, and the one that we did a couple days ago was a prime up, first time mom, um, and labored great. Um, Hayes was her doula. She said, "I think you should come. She wants the tub." So I came and checked her, and she was almost complete, and it was like. I mean, it had been maybe six hours. It was really a pretty quick uh, first-time mom uh, active labor period. And then um, we waited. We pushed, um, pushed in a lot of different positions. We had some decelerations on the stool. So we got her off and did a few different positions. And it kind of got to this point where her, her contractions were slowing down in certain positions, like on the stool, the baby um, wasn't loving it, but in other positions was doing great. And so it was kind of, and she was getting tired and feeling like maybe she should just go into the hospital. Um, and so we offered for Dr. Fishbein to come and put on a vacuum. And it was funny when Hayes and I were talking about it, she was like, are you sure the baby's low enough? And I'm like, oh yeah, the baby's low. I mean, I've done oh, enough yeah, of these with yeah. you. Like the baby's definitely the baby, low enough. The baby was right there. It's one of the easiest vacuums. That I've ever done. Yeah. We, we could definitely see the keyhole for uh, well over an hour. It reminds me a lot of my own birth um, with Jordan that I ended up. <laughs> the animals are, are having a moment um, where I wish that you had been. You know, I wish I had had 
you as an option back then. I had Dr. Wu who passed away. We yes. didn't talk about that. Um, li- lived and worked a long time here in Los Angeles. So I had to transport to the hospital, but you came in. Um, they were joking around later on because some family members were upstairs waiting and they were joking around about how, like when you came in, it was definitely like, okay, where do I put my stuff? And it was like, well, right, I, said, yeah. I have the male energy. <laughs> I, I, there's no question that I have male energy. <laughs> And I said, oh, yeah, he admits that. He knows that for sure. But they loved you. And um, we put the vacuum on, gave consent, put the vacuum on. Stu reminded me how to do it because, you know, I don't do that all the time. Offered to let me practice yeah, I wanted, I, I wanted you to do it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I know. I probably should have said yes. Well, it's a stupid, again, in a world of stupidity, these are other stupid laws, okay, that a vacuum should only be the purveyance of an OBGYN, that I have to go to medical school for four years, residency for four years, to be able to put something on a baby's head Mm -hmm. that is a fail-safe mechanism on it, that you pull too hard, it comes off, and that only I, as an OBGYN, can use a vacuum, and you, as a midwife, would have to t- take somebody who's just sitting right there or is having D-cells and you could expedite the delivery in about two minutes as opposed to maybe another 20 or 30 or 40 minutes. Um, and, you, and you're not allowed to use that. Mm-hmm. I find, again, we do live in the age of stupidity, all right? You know, we had America's greatest generation uh, around World War II. Now we have my generation is the generation sort of of stupidity because... Everything that's being done, and I mean almost everything that's being done, would be the opposite of how I would do it if I were running. King if I were running day. things, right? There's no reason that a midwife can't put a vacuum on. All right, none. Um, so I want you to. You didn't want to do it, so I did it. Yeah, I mean, because it was going to be. An, it was going to be an easy one. I really respect the skill set that you have. Um, but I know that they can, they they come with complications as well, you know, when we're pushing past the norm. So it would have been a good opportunity. Cause like you said, it, you know, in, in my desires to, to deliver babies around the world, there's other places where that really wouldn't have been life-saving cause I could have been the person who had the skill set. But anyways, we put it on and you have to pump it. My, my son was joking. He's like, do you like plug it in? And then it's like a vacuum. I'm like, no. Well, they do like, have, they do have, <laughs> they do have suctions that are electric in a hospital. They do oh, yeah. for babies. Yeah, for vacuums, the old-fashioned ones. But now people either use the Mighty Vac, which is what I use, which is the hand pump, or they have the Kiwi, which is even smaller, which is a little thing with a little tube on it, and it has a little 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 hand pump that the uh, the doctor goes, uh-huh. and it pumps. And they it. work as well. Some people prefer the Kiwi. Mm-hmm. I just happen to, you know, you get comfortable with what you're used to doing, yeah. and, and um, so I like the Mighty Vac. Yeah. So we had to you pump it up. And I'm supposed to keep it in this green area. And I've done this before, but for some reason this time I had to like. Well, like, it, 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 was, it was not sealed well. It yeah. Was, I think it was the shape of the baby's head because I was right on the exact right spot. Yeah. Because the baby was directly OA. I don't know why it didn't come down because it, was, it wasn't even that big. It was seven. It, 10, was, it was power. Seven pounds, 10 ounces. So there are three reasons. Oh, it was power, right. There are three reasons that we could have challenges during um, labor and delivery. So passenger, so the baby's in a, in a funky position. Power, so how strong the contractions are, which they had really petered out at one point. They were 25 minutes apart. And then um, power passenger and pelvis, and you know, so the I call it the the passageway. Actually, we call it. Oh, 
the yeah. passageway. It's still a pee. Pelvis, right. Um, so Dr. Fishbein came and, and Stu and wondered if um, baby was OP, um, but I didn't suspect. And when the baby came out, it definitely wasn't. It was OA. No, once I put my fingers in, I could tell. But, mm-hmm. but the interesting thing is in a breech birth, when the labor peters out like that, mm-hmm. we throw in the towel. Because we really don't have the option of, except if you're Dr. Wu, <laughs> God rest his soul, mm-hmm. uh, who put vacuums on babies' butts sometimes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we don't have the option. Because, and we always say that labor should progress spontaneously or C-sections are indicated. So how come with head down babies, her labor petered out? Why did it do that? When she was that close, why does labor disappear when they're that close. I, I think maybe she just needed to rest. Maybe because the baby was having decelerations, the body knew that like it would just needed a time of rest. Oh, it was having, yeah. I didn't hear any while I was there. No, it happened before. And then we um, got her on the bed, got oxygen, got her, I don't know what the technical term is, but um, bum above, you know, on all fours with your butt in the air and your chest down. Because I felt like maybe if we got baby off the cervix um, that might help with whatever position issues were not causing like really strong urge to push for her either. There was a lot of directed pushing, which I don't normally have to do. Most of my clients just labor down and, and, you know, have that fetal ejection um, and we don't have to do a lot of directed pushing. So, you know, you get to this point sometimes where you're also balancing. So I think if she had been a woman who delivered a baby before she had the back of her mind, hospital, epidural possibility, we would have just said, we just have to wait. We just have to wait. And sh- her contractions would have come back. Eventually she would have rested. Like um, Elizabeth Davis says the very first thing that you should do when contractions peter out is put a woman into a resting position and feed her and leave her alone and let it and let it come back naturally. Is that, um, is that what Williams Obstetrics says too? I don't know. <laughs> I don't haven't read it. <laughs> that's that's my sarcastic sense of humor. Okay, that's really interesting that Elizabeth Davis says that because that's smart. Yeah. But that's not what we're taught. No, it's push, push, push. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Contractions are spacing out. We need to start pitocin. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. right. And I think it's always a balancing act for me at home to decide it. Like if, if that's going to work, if she's really going to rest, then let's do that. And if she is not, and she's kind of like losing patience and, you know, we're having other issues then maybe we would do some herbs or the other day, I think I mentioned, I even gave a mom castor oil in labor, which is not common for me at all. But, um, she was a multip who had been in labor now for over 30 hours and she was about to lose yeah. her, you know what? So. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a fascinating thing that we we are comfortable what we learn and we're creatures of habit. And if we do things a certain way, like I just talked about my mighty vac vacuum, we we tend to do things that way, and we tend not to whether it's cognitive dissonance or confirmation bias or just anxiety or fear, we tend not to branch out into other other things. Especially the longer we do something one way, the long habit of doing it some way, uh, it becomes the only way to do it. And when you said something about well, we should just put her on her side at rest and give her something to eat. Can you imagine that being taught in medical school? Yes. Yeah. But I'm just, <laughs> yes. you, we can't imagine it, but that's not what, that's not exactly what I was going there. Cause I mean, it, 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 I can imagine it. You're right. Can you actually see it happening right now? Mm-hmm. No, it, it's not the kind of thing that they would, they would teach. They don't want to go outside of their comfort zone. And that brings me to a couple of a whole bunch of things 
Yeah, I guess I'll talk about my. my uh, I do have another birth at one point. I want to share. Okay, but I, but this is a good segue yeah, into what I, I wanted to talk about. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, I had this woman who had the two V-backs and then had the, the breech first twin, had twins. It, it, it was probably my most viral post ever. And I was talking to, um, I think it was the Australian midwives yesterday. Or, no, it might, have been, it might have been the woman in North Carolina yesterday. Um, and I was saying, because she, she presented her story and she has, her it's her third pregnancy, she has a breech baby with a little bit extra fluid so the baby's got a sort of an unstable lie. But her history is that she had a vaginal delivery with her first baby and she was induced for mild preeclampsia uh, pre at 38 and 6 and had a, uh, I think she said a one and a half hour labor <laughs> for her first baby. Mm -hmm. In her second baby, she had twins and they were breech breech twins, right? And she had a big, she had a maternal fetal medicine doctor who was sort of really <coughs> obtuse and difficult, but ultimately it's quite skilled and ultimately despite his tantrums and running out of the room and doing all the things that he did he eventually agreed with her that she could have a vaginal birth and she was just insistent and she had a vaginal birth um and then she developed help syndrome postpartum mm. so now she's pregnant again with a breach with an unstable lie and they want to induce her at 37 weeks because she might develop preeclampsia mm -hmm. and i thought about what she said for a second and i know i'm paraphrasing because there's a lot more to the story but do we induce people because they might develop preeclampsia? No. No. At 37 weeks? No. No. Why, why, why would we do that? All right. But also, now, are they doing anything like midwifery knows to help get her no. healthier so that she may not? Well, she's not having a problem this pregnancy, but it, is she on any sort of nutritional things? Yeah. You know, I didn't get into that because that wasn't the reason for the phone call yeah. or the, the Zoom call last yeah. night. But the idea that that this is how the doctor thinks. He thinks, well, I want to I wanna intervene with interventions that absolutely couldn't possibly cause any problems to prevent something that's not happening yet. Yeah. Am I missing something? Am I, you know. That happens all the time. Right. I, just, right. I, don't, I don't quite understand what's going on. So I get back to the VBAC after two, you know, after two C-sections with the twins. And, and I, the comments were great. And there were every now and then there was a troll in there that would said something like, well, this woman values her birth more than she values the life of her children or some stupid thing like that. Yeah. And then, of course, most physicians would never do that. The reason she ended up doing it with me is because nobody in the hospital would give her even the option. Mm -hmm. But sometimes when you break a problem down, and this is sort of how my mind looks at the problem, I, I look at it and I don't want to use what's called gunny sacking where I pig pile up on all, on all the different things. Um, I don't want to... I don't want to um, take individual things that aren't a problem then because there's a lot of individual things that aren't a problem, make it into a problem. For instance, is VBAC after two C-sections contraindicated? In general? Yes. No. No. It's even supported in ACOG's position paper on, on VBAC. Okay. Uh, are twins vaginal delivery contraindicated? No. No. <laughs> is, bre is, bre is breech first twin contraindicated? No. No. By the way, I should speak that up. I don't think I brought this up last time, but just coincidentally in this month or maybe it was last month's Green Journal, which is the big journal, um, there's a paper that comes out that says first twin and breach presentation and neonatal mortality and morbidity according to planned mode of delivery. It looks like this. Okay. There. 
okay? And it's from the Green Journal. And again, I, I, I urge people to read the whole article because I, I'm doing something now for sake of time that I tell you never to do, and that's not just to read the conclusion. Yeah, you shouldn't. Right. Yeah, especially but on these papers. The conclusion says, in outcomes uh, between planned cesarean and planned vaginal delivery in twin pregnancies, in which the first twin was breached, in our cohort, planned vaginal delivery was not associated with higher neonatal mortality and morbidity for either twin. So good data, green journal, very, very pr uh, prestigious journal that breach first twins is not something that is any better to section them for if you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Of course, the question is, are you- You should put that um, up on Instagram. I don't think you can, I don't think that, I, you think you have to be- uh... You just take a picture. Oh, I can take a picture of it? Yeah, just take a picture and say that there's this research that supports Good it. Good point. Yeah. All right. Yeah. My mind doesn't think like that. I know. <laughs> so, yeah. So my, so my point back to this woman and, and many other clients that I take care of, and I'll, I'll just, I have another one I can talk about in a second, where VBAC after two is not contraindicated, twins is not contraindicated, breach first twin is not contraindicated, yet you put them all together, okay, and no physician is going to offer her this option in the hospital, okay. So obviously home birth, everyone in ACOG and, and, and organized medicine hates. So no birth is no birth is indicated in the home, according to them. Yeah. Right. So they think it's crazy to do this, but they won't offer it to her. Right. Yet there's nothing in her history that says that she shouldn't have this option if she wants to try. Yeah. Right. So what 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 is a what is a mother who's informed supposed to do? Right. So she's completely out of options. This is the same thing that happened when we passed you know, anti-abortion laws and women didn't have the option and they had to do things that were really dangerous. Or, you know, I always like compare a woman's option to decide how she's going to care for herself the same way that we would someone who had cancer. Like if someone had cancer said, I don't want to do any of the things that you want me to do, are they going to lock that person up and say that they're mentally not stable enough to take care of themselves? You know, they might. And not, not usually. They and, usually well, give and, them the option. Yeah, but in our profession, they, they may call child protective services on them. Right, but that's what I'm saying. Like the double standards. It's medicine. You should have the option to be able to decide how you're going to do it. And I've said it a million times. Western medicine is not the only way to care for yourself. And if my colleagues only only took a moment to step back and say, listen, if I give these women more time to talk to me and have a relationship and understand and talk about the risks and benefits honestly about all options right then this idea of liability and 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 fear it's you know when people take when people share in the decision making process or actually i mean some people don't like that term but when people are given true informed consent and come to the conclusion and if there's a bad outcome in that case it's almost never there, there's pointing fingers right because they but with the finger pointing comes it. the finger pointing comes from when they weren't given the option or they felt they were ignored or or they were railroaded or, mm -hmm. or coerced down a path. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they look back later on and they do some research later on and they find, Oh my God, yeah. why did he, why did he induce me at 38 and a half weeks? Yeah. Oh, that sort of thing. I have another client right now who's um, just past 40 weeks who ha is a type one diabetic and has hypertension, pregnancy induced hypertension, mm -hmm. not preeclampsia yet, but, if she developed preeclampsia, that's a different story. Mm -hmm. Preeclampsia is not something I'm going to mess around with in a home birth setting. If she gets preeclampsia, she goes to the hospital, yeah, she gets yeah, injured, yeah. and she knows that. 
So, but just because someone is a type one diabetic, that used to be an automatic. No home breath. Well, not even that. It was, it was the way we dealt with, I think it's changed a little bit. The way we dealt with insulin requiring diabetics is we did an amniocentesis on them at 37 to 38 weeks. The lungs were mature, we induced them. Right? In the world now, I don't know that they do an amnio, but they don't, but they induce all diabetics by 38 weeks because of the increasing risk of stillbirth. And which, baby which, size, probably. Well, type 1 diabetics generally aren't the ones that have macrosomia. They're the ones oh, more likely oh, to have oh. vascular problems oh, and more likely uh -huh. to have babies that are on the smaller it. side. Yeah. It's the it. gestational diabetics mm -hmm. that, that have the bigger babies. Mm -hmm. So they, they induce them, um, whether their cervix is favorable or not, and that's what they do. And if a woman has hypertension, they also think that the risk of stillbirth is rising, and therefore they induce them for that too. But neither one of those things is absolute. And again, if you give the person information and, she, and a woman has her heart set on a vaginal delivery and doesn't want to be in the hospital because she knows how she would have been treated in the hospital, you know, you can take each of these individual things and say, okay, this one itself doesn't make me want to induce you. This one itself doesn't make me want to induce you. If neither one makes me want to induce you, why do the two of them together make me want to induce you? Mm -hmm. Sometimes things do like add up and you're like, okay, this flag, this flag, this flag, this is getting. Yeah, but that's flag. your, that's your sixth sense. Mm -hmm. And we all have a sixth sense, but does our sixth sense translate into telling a woman she, we, we can't support her and we can't give her her choice. Or does that woman need our support more than anybody, more than anything? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it depends on the, the things that are pig filing, but in your scenarios, I completely understand. Right. Um, speaking of, uh, induction, crazy inductions, mm -hmm. um, tell me, uh, the risks of having PCOS. An induction? What are the risks to having PCOS? In life? Sure. Having to do with fertility. Well, my, ho my, my horse has it. <laughs> she does. She does. It's a metabolic. Uh, it's a metabolic disorder where um, there are uh, there are certain um, the underlying cause. There's probably again. I'm not a scientist, and then probably there are more. There's more much more nuanced than what I'm telling you. Mm -hmm. But the underlying problem in people with PCOS is insulin resistance, mm -hmm. which then leads to um, hormonal dysfunctions. Where some people with PCOS will have increased hirsutism, obesity, depression, ovulate irregularly or not at all, um, and, and are a risk for adult, on, you know, adult onset diabetes, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Other people with PCOS may have just oligoovulation or have a difficulty getting pregnant. So there's a, I guess, so I, I guess I'd call it a spectrum. I mean, it goes from... So mostly it's fertility. When it comes to pregnancy, right? When it, well, when it comes to getting pregnant, they it, usually have a hard time getting it's pregnant. because they're not ovulating regularly. They have the ovaries have, if you look at the ovaries on ultrasound and somebody with true PCOS, mm -hmm. they, they, they look like Swiss cheese. Mm -hmm. Okay. They're just filled with little cysts mm -hmm. and these little cysts are all creating a milieu of like hyperandrogen secretion, which then prevents sort of the ovary from responding to the pituitary's FSH coming out. And the extra androgen that these little cysts are making is what's the cause of the change in muscle, change in body habitus, and also the hair and acne that they might that Right. PCOP. So once they're pregnant, are they higher risk for um, having issues or um, having losses? 
A woman who had PCOS who got that pregnant that, naturally. I, that does not, you know, I have a great mind for things that I learned in medical school and, mm -hmm. and are triggered. That does not ring a bell for me. Me neither. So I had a 34-year-old woman come into my office. Oh, so you were testing me? You were quizzing me? No, I was, I was setting the story up. Mm -hmm. um, you always do good on these tests, by the way. Um, so I, I was a good tester. <laughs> I, I was. I believe that. 34, 34 years old, 14 and a half weeks. So she's been seeing a provider already. She comes in and says, you know, I said, oh, you know, do you have any questions before we jump in? And she said, well, we're just kind of wondering if a midwife would have caught some of the stuff that our doctor is catching because I was on progesterone from six to 12 weeks. Um, she did a gestational diabetes test already. She did a structural ultrasound already, 14 and a half weeks. Um, she also, what was the other thing that she did? Oh, and this is why I brought it up. Wanted to schedule her induction. 14 and a half weeks. Asked her, what do you, what do you think about scheduling your induction now? And she was thinking like, why would I, you know? And I said, you know, it just feels like this is a, a you're, you're in the practice of a doctor who leans on the conservative side. She had had no previous losses. Can, can, I, can, I, can I interrupt for one second? Can I interrupt for one second? Yes. Keep that, keep exactly where you are right now yes. in mind. It has nothing to do, by the way, my video went off. So just if somebody again will text me or message me and saying you can see me, that's great. Um, I, I, you know, I, I guess partly because I, I tend to be on, on the conservative political side more than the liberal side. Mm -hmm. When people say that somebody that's obtusely stupid <laughs> is on the conservative side, I, I, I think it's the wrong word. I think, mm -hmm. I think you should say that they are on the interventionist side or that they're on the fear-based side or they're on the medicalized side. Because I'm not sure that conservative... Because to be really truly conservative, we could go back to when everybody had births at home. You know, that could be the real conservative side because you're going back, you know, further back in time with traditional. So she, she's, I just, it's just a thing where people will always say it's conservative to be interventionist. Mm -hmm. Right? You don't like the, the collapse of terms. I, I, yeah, I, I think it's probably correct, but it, but there's such an intermingling of the word. And because words now are being manipulated, you know. People can see my t-shirt. You can see my t-shirt. You know, <laughs> words are, are, are very important. Mm -hmm. So I just want to say that. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Okay. So I just, I just couldn't believe it. And then I was like, have you had losses before? Did you have a hard time getting pregnant? And she's like, no, I'm like, wow. That, I think that was the, the most, um, aggressive early management didn't, of a healthy woman piece, you know, just didn't we have PCOS someone else? To, only oh yeah. We had someone else recently who at like 10 weeks had a placenta previa. Mm -hmm. Did we talk about this last week? Mm -hmm. oh. I don't think so. 10 weeks had a placenta previa and the, and, the, and the doctor was already talking to her about scheduling her C-section. And not giving it to At me. 10 weeks. <laughs> so uh, her midwife, it wasn't you obviously, her yeah. midwife sent her to me and at 20 weeks, she, placenta wasn't even low lying anymore. Yeah. yeah. But for 10 weeks, she'd been upset mm -hmm. because the doctor said something really conservative <laughs> so i'm going to go back and get a couple of questions that from the last story i was telling so herbs that i would use in labor um 
I do have something from uh, one of the combinations that is a labor enhancer that you can use in early labor, but in that stage of labor, I would just try black and blue. Um, yeah, that's the answer to that question. Um, any herbs for meds for resting? No, we would just maybe get them in the tub, get um, a person to maybe help massage, do some relaxing techniques. Um, and just help her rest in any position that she could. So Debbie asked that question too. So there's no meds for um, no meds for rest. I have I have it says nutrition tips to prevent preeclampsia. Yeah. I happen to have a handout oh, oh. from my from my dear friend Beth Cannon. We love Beth Cannon. It's uh, and I'll, I'll I'll go through it real quickly because um, and if somebody wants to email me this, I can I can uh, email them the the P, the PDF of this, but. It's not for preeclampsia. Again, we're talking about for hypertension. I mean, for mild preeclampsia, this is probably okay too. But if you got preeclampsia in your client, um, you know, and they're at term, you might be able to buy a little time, but ultimately, it's not going to go away. It depends on what what we're talking about. Some elevated, um, like a slight proteinuria, some elevated. Um, yeah, I guess if it's a light call for preeclampsia, right? Yeah, but I'm I've, talking about somebody with somebody 150 over 90 with two plus protein, and maybe their transaminases are slightly elevated on their blood, you know, on their pickle panel and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Anyway, here's here's some of the things that we suggested to the client I mentioned to you earlier. Um, she says a high protein diet with at least 100 to 150 milligram no grams, excuse me, of protein. And at least two-thirds the body weight in fluids or water in ounces daily. So if you weigh 100 pounds, you should be drinking uh, 70 ounces mm -hmm. of fluid, which is what? That's 210, 2.1 liters, mm -hmm. right? So positive for a second. This is the biggest thing for midwives in terms of helping prevent preeclampsia. Um, normally we say 75 to 100 grams a day, but then if we see that somebody is starting to have issues with proteinuria or blood pressure issues, that goes up to a, to 100 to 150. Which one? Erin Elizabeth Davis. Mm -hmm. Lily Nichols' books talks very specifically about diet for minimizing the risk of preeclampsia. Great. Uh, she has a Real Food for Pregnancy. I guess it must be a book or something like that. Uh, yep. I, we've talked about that book before. Yes. Thanks, Erin. So Real Food for Pregnancy is something that came out in the last few years. And um, she has some, she goes very deep into nutrition. So for some people, that's really interesting and they would like to do that. And for other people, that's way too much information. But it's a great, great book. So yeah. So here's some simple things. She mm -hmm. says, use the herbs passion flower, hops, skull cap. Boy, this is really cauldron stuff, isn't it? <laughs> and valerian. These are just tinctures. And I have newt. Because <laughs> it says skull cap. <laughs> yeah. And valerian in either tincture form or capsules. Mm-hmm. And then just how to take it. I Bre like tinctures better. Brewing a pregnancy-induced hypertension tea consisting of four ounces of dandelion leaf, mm -hmm. four ounces of linden flowers, eight ounces of hawthorn berry, a shot of whiskey. No, just <laughs> soak in a gallon of water overnight and boil for 15 minutes the next day. Wow. That's really, that is cauldron stuff. No, it's you're brewing. You're brewing. It's herbology. <laughs> yeah. Boil and boil, toil and trouble. Blah, blah, blah. What's the, how's it go? All right. Eat large amounts of watermelon and cucumbers daily. So I heard cucumbers are really good for that. I'm not sure exactly why. Mm -hmm. but, cucumbers and watermelon are very But I'm assuming, hydrating. I'm assuming pickles are not. Nope, the salt. Because of the good. salt. Although my client who has this problem was looking into the brewer diet. Salt to taste. 
and she said that, that, that to to not restrict salt to yeah. actually increase salt. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Now, uh, and best thing she mentioned, sea salt is a good thing to use. Not make sure you're using only sea salt on your food, not like regular salt. regular mm -hmm. iodized mm -hmm. Morton's. Mm -hmm. Your body salt. absorbs it better. With the cute little girl with the umbrella. It doesn't dehydrate you more. I'm glad, by the way, that they haven't taken the cute little girl with the umbrella off the mm -hmm. bottle of Morton salt. Mm -hmm. It's iconic. Be, yeah, but so is Aunt Jemima, and so is um, and so is the Land O'Lakes Indian. You know, the Land O'Lakes butter doesn't have an Indian, Indian on it anymore. Well, they're different. Keep going. All right. Well, I come from the Land O'Lakes. That's why you know it's like. Mm -hmm. it's, it, yeah. So I, I don't buy Land O'Lakes butter anymore. Okay. Because I'm mad. Okay. All right. So coming. I don't want to succumb. Uh, spend 15, 30 minutes a day doing breathing exercises, visualizations, meditation. Take tea, two teaspoons of cream of tartare. What is cream of tartare? Is that like tartar sauce? No, <laughs> it's a powder. Um, yeah, I don't know specifically what it does. In a half a cup of water with it. juice and half mm -hmm. a lemon. Take magnesium, of course, magnesium calcium supplement and take it every night. Mm -hmm. Make sure you're getting a higher ratio of magnesium to calcium and takes approximately 800 milligrams magnesium in the supplement. Uh, diet rich in fruit and vegetables. Avoid any refined foods. This includes sodas, oh. white flour, white sugar products, prepackaged food with preservatives, dyes, and colors. Use homeopathic barita carbon carbonica mm -hmm. for assistance with hypertension. Is that a, uh, oh, that's homeopathy, mm -hmm. right? Is that the thing that comes in a little yellow box? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, all the midwives bring this little yellow box. To that birth. one's specifically ones for birth, but there's lots and lots yeah. of homeopathy. And then go see your acupuncturist or massage therapist or your Reiki practitioner, Reiki. if at all possible. Reiki. Oh, Reiki? Mm-hmm, Reiki. Reiki. Mm-hmm. Uh, one to two times a week. And then garlic, parsley, and onions can help lower blood pressure. Best in large amounts raw. Garlic oil capsules in doses of two to ten daily may be used. So that's... You know, things that you can do. And now, do you do this to prevent hypertension or do you wait till a woman starts to show evidence of hypertension? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Thank yeah. you very much. Yep. That's yep. Really, yep. really good news. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's see what else we got. Here we got calcium, magnesium. Yep. That's true. Mm -hmm. Baby aspirin. Yeah. Baby aspirin's a, a, in, in more in the allopathic medicine thing. But yes, I think that there's no harm in doing that. Although, toward term, you really don't want somebody on aspirin because aspirin affects platelet platelet aggregation and that's why people who take aspirin through pregnancy because of a fertility issue or an autoimmune issue we usually tell them to stop taking about 34 35 weeks at least i do having to do with the delivery itself yeah because yeah. you want the platelets to be working mm -hmm. right uh yes you did alicia says um himalayan salt is best because it's full of sea minerals which is true yes has minerals in it as well and our body does uh, lose a lot of minerals each pregnancy, so anything we can do to replenish minerals is great. Oh, and did you? She said Elizabeth uh, Aaron said that you talk you talk about protein and improving the perineum. Yes, just uh, good did, nutrition overall. Did you just say that? Did you say that while I was just last, time, oh, last time? Last time. Last time. Okay. Um, one of the things we said we were going to circle back to this time, and then I would love to talk about my birth. Um, is how can doulas and doctors work better together? Someone asked that last time as we were ending, and I told them we would talk about it today. What are your recommendations? <laughs> I kind of knew. My serious go like recommend, this. well, my non-serious recommendation would be for doulas to encourage their patients not to have doctors. 
Mm. <laughs> okay. Okay, the <laughs> end. No. <laughs> yeah, I know that's not possible most of the world. Most of the yeah, most of the we're world. Joking, so. Really. Um, again, again, it, it gets it gets down to breaking the silos, and the problem is, is that most doctors don't want the silos broken. I know many, many doulas who, in the past, have told me that they've reached out to a doctor's office or whatever else to try to you know, come and speak to the staff or bring lunch. Doctor's offices love, and the staff love when you want to try to promote something or do or what yourself or a product or whatever, like the pharmaceutical reps used to do, is to bring lunch. Mm -hmm. So you call the office manager, you set up a lunch, and you bring lunch. The problem is, is that the doctors will look at see who's bringing lunch, and if it's a doula, they, they won't they won't come they into won't the lunch room, right? Yeah. So you'll you'll get the you'll get to their staff, which is a which is a start, by the way. Because doctors are only as good as their staff. Mm -hmm. So, and their staff know how to get to the doctor. So if you can get to the staff, you can sort of get to the doctor. So that's one way to do it is to try to uh, professionally introduce yourself because the doctor isn't going to generally take, good doctors will, will reach out because they, they watch what you do and they, they're fascinated by it. But those are few and far between. Most doctors, again, they're not there till the very end. They're not watching what you're doing for... 16 hours so they don't know and they look at doulas as you know they first of all they look at birth as something to be getting getting done and getting out of the way getting the baby in the bassinet so they can move on to their next task so they sometimes look at doulas as an impediment to that yeah um they want to start pitocin the doula says can we have more time to think about it that's frustrating that, for them that's frustrating for them mm -hmm. because they're not thinking about the patient as as a human being as a human being, they're really not. They're thinking about their medical background and their and their their time schedule. Everything they have. So, um, yeah. So I think I think that ultimately, Augustine always says, our friend Augustine Colebrook, is it would be great if there was uh, some sort of organized system or meetings where in, in in a community somebody with the authority to get people interested to come would organize a say once every three months or once every six months a community birth forum mm -hmm. and have it where you invite some of the doctors who might be a little bit more recalcitrant to be keynote speaker at the forum mm -hmm. and then you invite doulas to speak also so that you have and and then of course a midwife and then maybe a labor delivery nurse and you yeah, sort of break, and, break, and you're breaking down the barriers so that each person can, and then you can have a panel discussion with a Q and A. Um, that might be one way to do it because otherwise, uh, the 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 two professions are sort of either they're either parallel or divergent. They're really never going to intersect in in the world of the hospital. And I only see the hospital truly as getting worse. I don't see it as getting better, and I think I think coronavirus was a real setback for the advance, the small advances that were being made in in mother baby friendly type stuff. And I mean, now you look at how how major institutions, maternal fetal medicine, are treating fathers as non essential personnel. That drives me freaking crazy. They're not allowed in for the ultrasound. They're not allowed in for this or that. If there's an external version, they're not allowed in to you know to whoop. Who is who calms the person their wife their 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 spouse or their partner more than their part than the part than their partner? Yeah. Okay. Most of the time, anyway. Yeah. 
I mean, you know, for some reason that just clicked a story in my mind from way back, way back when. All right. Way, way back. When I was in attending at, at Cedar Sinai in Los Angeles, I came in one morning to make rounds on one of my postpartum patients and I found my patient in tears. Okay. Um, no, it's not. It's all the way. I found my patient in tears and I said, what happened? And they said, they brought me the wrong baby last night and they took my baby to a different woman and a different woman was breastfeeding my baby. Oh, God. Okay. And, I, and they brought me the wrong baby. And, I, and I'm finding about it in the morning. Yeah. And the woman was distraught. Yeah. And when it happened, you know who the first person the nurse called, the, the nursing, the nurse on the night shift called? Mm. Risk management. Mm. Okay. Yeah. They called risk management. They called the department. They, called, they didn't call the woman's attending physician. Didn't even occur to them that. You have a relationship. That I have a relationship with her. Mm-hmm. That the best person to call to to try to mitigate the situation would have been the person that knows her best. Yeah. Right. And I don't think that that much has changed actually at hospitals. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, I think that that you know I don't. What's your take on how to make doulas and doctors? Uh, um, um, I mean, I think you're talking about like the real relationship and bridging that, which I do think is very difficult. Um, but I think that when you are um, in the room, you know, making sure to empower your client to be the one who's advocating for themselves, um, the clients, the, the dad and the mom um, to be the one who asks questions, who asks for time, who, you know, I try to say very little in front of the staff. Um, because I don't want them to think that those, like I'm pushing for something, um, rather than just trying to remind and support and interpret what's happening because we have talked about their preferences ahead of time. And I think having your clients talk to their clients before labor, talking about some of the things that are important to them during their prenatal visits so that it's not during a time where the doctor is rushed and stressed and, um, they can have a real conversation, I think can make a huge impact as well. Um, you know, I try really not to be adversarial. Um, we, we had a doula on remember the Halloween episode. Um, what was her? I can't remember her name right now. Um, but you know, she had, she was put in a position to really have to fight the system. And, um, I respect her for that because in those moments, it is really difficult because you know, if you get seen as that difficult doula, doctors, you know, to tell their clients not to work with you, they won't let you in the birth room, the nurses start to be hostile towards you, you know what I mean? So it's it's such a difficult place to be in because you want to continue to support your clients and to be able to be accepted inside of the rooms and make it right with these doctors. But in order to do that, sometimes you have to bite your tongue about things that you see that I was saying to uh, a new midwifery student the other day, sometimes it literally feels like you're watching somebody being raped and I'm not exaggerating. Assaulted at least. Yeah. 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 It it really feels so violating and you're just standing by and you know that it's going to make it more difficult for the, for the mom if you step in and it's um, it's a difficult position that doulas are put in sometimes. So um, I love, I love the, you know, the imaginative idea of having these um, conferences where there's a lot of cross um, contamination is the word that's coming to mind. But, you know, learning 
so that we can learn about each other and have more empathy um, for each other's position. I think that would go, but that's not. Yeah, I just, I don't, I don't know how it changes because I, like I said, I only think that things at the hospital are getting worse. Yeah. I think that, you know, um, the whole child protective services thing and the idea that parents, parents, are not competent to take care of their children that only the hospital can and that the that the if a parent decides to do something that's against the way the hospital algorithm works then they're they're felt they're they're made to feel that they're that there's that they're inadequate there's something wrong with them right i mean um from what i heard from some people over the over the last couple of weeks I, that the nurses are tracking the patients are like they're like watching how they're interacting. They watch the how the husband interacts with the wife, and, blah, 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 and they're tracking you. And they're like, and, and they're they're supposed to like probably part of their nursing notes or something. They're reporting on that, and that they they you cannot be discharged now from most hospitals without a confirmed pediatric appointment. This happened. I think I talked about that. They were like, you you have to come and see them within twenty four hours. I was like, okay, sure, yeah, I'm coming. Right. You know, it's like, why? Well, they just want to be able to put down in the chart that they told you to do that. And so uh, because then they they feel that that alleviates their liability if you don't do that. Mm -hmm. All right. It's why they give you all these long handouts to read. OK, that no one ever reads. All right. I mean, I've seen some of the stuff that hospitals have sent people home with after like an admission for preterm labor. Mm -hmm. It's like 10 pages of, of written instructions is nobody pay, nobody reads that i mean they, you might read it but it doesn't sink in and you mm -hmm. can't you you know but you have to sign that you got them mm -hmm. yeah. or it's like you and i just filling out a, you know a, an agreement with facebook where uh, i agree it's like well i'm agreeing to have you have all my data and sell it to anybody else because if i don't agree you won't let me do a facebook live so i have to agree right who knows what we're agreeing and to. then elizabeth again aaron elizabeth says that uh i never heard of this but she says hospitals are now Allowing doulas back in, but only if they pay a fee. You said souls. Well, she correct. She corrected <laughs> oh. it. it. Yeah, it just that was auto. Yeah, this is happening in a lot of places in Arkansas, and she heard about it through ICANN. Oh, yeah, you have to have certification, and you have to pay a fee. I think. Or is I that should, for the certification? I think I should start a certification for you guys. Maybe. Yeah, I let's can, start. Let's yeah. start our own board. I think we'll do a little certification where we send you like a little thing. A document that says yeah, and, and the fee will be cookies. <laughs> you have to send us. cookies. You have to send us cookies, <laughs> and then, um, and then we'll send you a, a, a certificate that you can frame and put on your wall, <laughs> or give to the doctors. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Can I talk about this birth before we have to end? Yeah. I, okay. Yeah. We, we. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yes. We'll do the birth. Should and we then, do rock paper scissors? No, you do the birth because <laughs> that's what people will tune in for. And then, if there's any time left, I have to do my my COVID mask update. Oh, COVID mask, COVID update. mask update. Okay. Right. So you saw one of my clients. I'm not going to mention names. Um, she had a low lying placenta. She was more on the kind of con nervous side. And so. Oh, that, is that me? No, no, oh, that's you. Not, that's me. Oh. Um, sorry, guys. Um, okay. He turned it on silent. Yeah. So she um, decided she was going to go into Dr. F Fishbein, uh, Dr. Stu, and, um, and make sure that it was out of the way. I knew that it was out of the way because it was only low-lying last time. So, you know, that was an early ultrasound. But she wanted to make her feel more comfortable. Mm -hmm. And you told her she would likely have what happens when it's low-lying. 
What would you tell somebody? What? Postpartum bleeding? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she told, Dr. Stu's told her, you're probably going to have more bleeding. Okay. So last night. And I probably didn't say it that way because that doesn't sound like how I would say it, but that's how she heard it, I guess. Okay. So last right. night, I well, yesterday I saw them. She thought her water had broken. She came in for a prenatal. I confirmed that she did not have a rupture. She was disappointed that she might be pregnant for a while. She left. I went on a sunset cruise last night. I told her, I said, I am going to go on this cruise for two hours. I'll check in with you before, but I don't think any, nothing was happening. That was at like five o'clock. So I get off the cruise. She's been having active contractions. Hayes goes over as her doula. I'm about to sit down for dinner. First time mom. Um, Hayes says, you, you should come. So I have my friend deliver the food to me later. Run over there. Wait, you want a cruise? I was on a cruise. I get off, off the boat. We got off the boat. I check in. Oh, you mean it wasn't cruising? No. She had contractions. I went on a cruise. I came back. Oh, okay. I got off the boat. We were going to dinner. Hayes said, maybe you have enough time. And then she's like, you don't have enough time after I had ordered. So I go hauling over there. I was 12 minutes away. Um, I'm running upstairs. You know, she's screaming. So I know that we don't have time to set up the tub, right? Has this beautiful delivery, intact perineum, great baby on her chest. She's sitting there. She's starting to get cramps only a few minutes later. I was like, yeah, that's your placenta. She's like, oh, it's really hard. I'm like, I know they don't feel comfortable, blah, 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 blah. Placenta starts to come. And I'm pretty sure now in thinking about it later, it came out dirty. Okay. But the sack was bulging in front of the placenta when it came out. Filled with blood, right? Totally. And so we're like, okay, let's do Pitocin right away, which we already had drawn up. And um, so um, <laughs> show them, what are you doing? She was firm. Yeah, but it's a lower uterine segment. Yeah. You need to put pressure on it. Yeah. So she was firm. So we gave her Pitocin. We watched. We um, we did massaging. I went in for clots. I did, you know, da 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 da, da. We looked for a, a bleeder in the vagina just in case that was what was going on. Because it wasn't, it then became like a trickle, rock hard uterus. Yeah, because it's, it's the lower part. I hate being right all the time. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> no, Methogen, it's, right? It, Methogen. Well, for the lower urine segment, not, nothing works that well. Mm-hmm. Okay, because it doesn't have the muscle, it doesn't contract as well as the final part, part of the uterus. So sometimes it's just pressure. But anyway, so what happened? We got it managed, but it was a lot. <laughs> there was a little squeaky high yeah. voice there. <laughs> it was a lot. It was one of those ones I was like, you know, and he goes, you were concerned. And I was like, I was focused. You know, you just get into yeah. that like mode. You're like, I need the Pitocin right now. And. No, ble- no bleeding in labor. Nope. Right. Okay. Zero. Right. Zero bleeding in labor. And I looked back on it and I was like, should I have, when she started to say that she was having those cramps, maybe I should have seen if the placenta was sitting there. Cause I did feel that the cord was stopped. Um, yeah. knowing that there was a yeah. little higher risk. Uh, again, you know me, I'm a little more aggressive with yeah. the third stage of labor than, than most of my midwife colleagues, because I have seen hemorrhages and I don't ever want to have to transport anybody who's just done a beautiful job yeah. of delivering their baby at home yeah. because now they're hemorrhaging mm-hmm. at, at home. I don't want to have to do that. So I am a little more aggressive. I will often gently ask them for permission to stick one finger in and I'll follow the cord up and 
if I follow the cord up and I feel the the placental insertion in the in the os or either, then just you know don't don't necessarily wait for it to come out because what's happening behind that placenta can be that it, your whole uterus is filling up with blood. Yeah. And then you can get something, when you get a lot of blood in the uterus, you get something called a cuvillary uterus, which is where it's, the, the muscle will not contract well because it's so, the, the, mm. the muscle wall becomes filled yeah. up with blood, yeah. right? So I don't, I don't know that I would do that for every birth, but maybe for someone who did have this higher risk of potentially bleeding more because of the lower lying um, placenta. Yeah. But it, like I said, it wasn't a long time. It was only a, maybe 10 minutes. So anyway. Well, I know I'm not right all the time, but <laughs> one of my favorite scenes from an old movie, which people my vintage have seen, you may have seen it called Broadcast News. I don't know if mm -hmm. you've ever seen it. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's a great scene in there where Holly Hunter plays the, this type A, un unbelievably good producer, but has no social life, no, yeah. no life whatsoever. She's great. No. And, you know, she's really good at her job. And there's a, there's a weekend scene where there's a Libya air attack and they need to anchor to cover the news on Sunday because they had anchors out of town. And so the head of the network thinks it should be William Hurd and she thinks it should be Albert Brooks. And they're, they're at a breakfast and they're arguing that morning. And finally the head of the network is so exasperated with her. He says, you know, it must be great to know you're right all the time. And she looks at him and she goes, no, it's awful. Right. And it is in a world where you are sort of all by yourself, Mm -hmm. And you see the things that we talk about every week, all right? We didn't even get to some stuff that I had today, but but um, it's 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 awful. Now, have I been wrong? Sure. Have I missed stuff? Sure. Everybody does. But I do have a really good sixth sense, as do most of my our midwife colleagues. You know, even when, when we talked earlier about there are certain clients that come into your care that you go like, she's not going to do her vaginally. No. Has that ever happened to you? Or do you have... I really, really try because not it, to. It, it does happen. Out. I mean, I, you know, all our other colleagues, you know, all the names I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. They all tell me that, you know, mm -hmm. and they'll tell me when, when somebody transfers into my care because of their breach or something like that. And I've just done several breaches with them. They'll look at me and they'll go, I knew she was going to do it. I knew she was going to do it, but I didn't think she was going to. And then sure enough, she, she doesn't do it. I don't yeah. know that it's the vibes that the midwife's putting out. I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, I think it's that every sense. I People think are, that yeah. every woman deserves um, for her providers to come in with 100% faith in her ability to be able to do it, and that's really important to me. That if I feel like that is sneaking in, that I um, okay get rid of it. So Hold got, on. Oh, so we right. may you lose you on Instagram. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back next week, barring birth at 10 a.m. Um, We've got one, one minute left. I know. I just wanted to know that we may be signing off in a minute. So thanks for being here. Yep. And then um, we're going to sign off on Facebook in a minute. I just wanted to do a couple of uh, things about uh, coronavirus. Again, I was on the hiking trail this morning. Mm -hmm. And I didn't encounter more than about eight or nine people, including one guy running, every single one wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. What the F is going on with people and fear and anxiety outside? I mean, do they just watch mainstream media? Do they not read? Do they not like understand that there's no evidence in the CDC or the World Health Organization or the New England Journal that wearing a mask when you're walking outside with your dog alone does any good? Mm -hmm. And then, you, of course, you, you, you see the people with their mask off. And then they see me coming without my mask on and they pull their mask up. Like I, I always talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I look at them and I, you know, I don't say anything to them because I don't want to insult them. Mm -hmm. 
But part of me wants to say to them, can we talk for a second? Yeah. You know, because I feel like I, my, I have an obligation um, to, to sort of, you know, I feel like my, my, my world is educating people. Mm-hmm. And I want to I want to ask them, you know, I would like to be you know, maybe I should pretend like I'm a reporter and, and just go up to them and interview them. <laughs> stand eight, stand eight, six, eight feet away and say, can I ask you some questions? Mm-hmm. You know, you're out here walking your dog in the forest. Why are you wearing a mask? Mm-hmm. I would like to know what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they pull the mask up and then they walk by me. And we've talked about this before. And then they pull their mask back down again. And it's like, well, if I'm spewing COVID particles, they're all behind me, not in front of me. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I, I don't quite get that. And then I get this, I get this really good organization from the, uh, that's called the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons. And I just wanted to, they, they look at things from the private practice physician um, point of view. And then I'm not, I, it's, it's a great, it's a great publication for me. I mean, it, 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 re, it reassures me that I'm not the only person out there who thinks like I do. Right. But, here, but here's something we talked about this once before and how do remember we talked about, they, uh, ACOG was putting out statements on how to get doctors to change the way they tell parents to get their kids vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Mm-hmm. It wasn't like about the vaccine. It was how to word the words so that you, you imply to them. So here's the thing. A Yale study called Persuasive Measures for COVID-19 Vaccine Update. Uptake, excuse me. Will research whether guilt, self-interest, or anger is the most effective way to convince people to get a COVID vaccine. <laughs> it will measure how confident the po- propaganda makes people feel about a vaccine, whether it makes participants want to persuade others to take the vaccine, whether it produces fear in the unvaccinated, and how much social judgment it will cast on those who choose to remain unvaccinated. Yeah, social pressure. Is the most effective way to convince people to get a COVID vaccine. It will measure how confident the propaganda makes people feel about the vaccine. This is what Yale is studying. Okay. Yeah. Homeschool your kids. Don't send them to colleges like that. Don't send them to. Don't spend sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year to send your kid to a college so he has a degree from a Ivy League college. So he can be indoctrinated into, into thinking stupidly. All right. End of story. All right. We didn't get to uh, these letters that I had from people. So Natalie and uh, Courtney, I'll try to get to you next time. Oh, sorry. I was just yammering on. We didn't get to your letters. I love when we I love when we run over because yeah. that means we had we really didn't run out of topics or something. Like that. No, we had a lot of topics today. Yeah. I've got some clients here, so we're gonna sign off. So. Again, this has been Dr. Seuss Podcasts. I don't even know what number it is, but this is uh, this is fire, non-fireside chat number 17. You can find us at drseusspodcast.com. You can find me at birthinginstincts.com. You can find Bliss at birthingbliss.com. You can email me at askdrstu at gmail.com or birthingbliss at birthingbliss. No, bliss at birthingbliss.com. Birth. But bliss, bliss at birthingbliss.com. There's yeah. a lot of B's there. So we did the we did the three P's and the three B's. Yes, we did. Okay. Bye everybody. Bye. Again, See you next last week. thing I always say, I know you have podcasts up the wazoo to listen to and things to do. The fact that you give us an hour once a week, it makes us feel really good about it and we try to always um, honor you by doing the best job that we can. Absolutely. And having a good time. So, so until next week. time. Bye bye. <laughs>